Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Continuing our exposition of this great gospel, and it's only appropriate during this time that we're talking about Christ, and we do that often here. He is great and awesome to be pondering and thinking about and understanding your Christology, the what to believe and what to trust and what to understand. The title of today's sermon is Misguided Expectations. Let me read our passage for us, just a handful of verses, starting in verse 22 of Mark chapter 8. It reads there, and they came to Bethesda, and they thought, or excuse me, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men. For I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored. And he began to see everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, do not even enter the village. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the text this morning. I fear as, as a preacher, as these miracle after miracles, that this can become mundane. This can be something that we expect you to do, heal people. Yet, Lord, there's, there's much to be understood here in this text. and It's a text that gauges our hearts. It, it helps us to understand that it's not mundane that you continue to do your, your marvelous work and you continue to display your divinity, your, your godness. And we as people should read a text like this and walk away in awe. For you are truly the King of kings and Lord of lords. So Spirit teaches there this morning Allow us to, to grasp the wonder and the mighty of the word. And may we deflect all of our praise to him. Be with your shepherd. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Expectations. We all have them, do we not? Some are right. Some are good. And however, some are unrealistic. Some expectations will never be reached. For the good and the right, for example, I expect Jesus Christ to return, right? We all expect him to return. 
The expectation is based on what is true, what is right, what is according to the scriptures. We don't hedge that expectation because the word of God tells us that he will come back. We don't know the day, the hour, the time, but the word of God calls us to be ready. Because it's going to happen. God is even kind to have us look for birth pains. When you think about his second coming, he gives us examples of what to expect in light of his future return. But the reality is he's going to return. We can expect that. On the other spectrum of this, unrealistic expectations, they can be rigid. They don't leave room for changes. They don't allow circumstances to happen. No flexibility. Sometimes the expectations might seem reasonable. They might seem fair. They might even seem realistic. But your experience reveals that in the end, they can't be met. Your expectations can also create more problems than they can solve. For example, I just had this conversation with a young man on Wednesday night. He was involved into a, a I guess, a a Christmas sweater program at school. He ended up getting third place. And he looked at me and says, it wasn't fair because brother and sister had the same sweater and they won. I looked him in the eyes and said, life is not fair. I think in his own heart, he was looking to approach that event as it's going to be fair. But what he found out that it wasn't. And you and I both know that life is not fair. It often shows its unfairness in many aspects of life. Or how about the other unrealistic expectation that, that everybody should like me, right? You like yourself? Surely everybody should like me. Reality hits, and you find out that you have a lot of enemies. A lot of people don't like you for whatever reason. And in particular, maybe it's because you love Christ. Maybe it's because you walk with, with, with truth in your life. Scripture, of course, tells us and guides us that, listen, not everybody's going to like you. Matter of fact, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will have persecution. You will have enemies. Expectations. Our text is, is, is kind of filled with this. When you look at it, you, you, you start studying this text and you start looking at the expectations of the blind man's friend bringing him to Jesus. Look at verse 22 again. I mean, it's just very clear that they had the expectation that Jesus could heal their friend. And they expected him to. All they had to do was get him in front of Christ. And notice what the text says. They implored him to touch him. All it was going to take was a touch. X. Grab a drink here. Expecting God to do 
according to his character. And I think to some degree, we should agree that this should happen. I think it's right that his friends hearing about the healings and the miracles of what Christ has done in the area, that they would expect Christ to heal, to lay his hand upon them. They've already seen this happen, no doubt. And so here they are, anxious to get him before Christ. And the expectations was that he was going to heal. I mean, when we think about God, we expect him to do things like what we see in our text. We expect him to do according to his character and his will. Surely he's going to, to heal this man and, and bring great glory to himself. And, and, and so all these expectations were laid at the feet of Christ. Expectations, even in our own Christian walk, expecting God to do what we think that he should do according to our will. Did you notice what he said there? Often we think that he should do accordingly to our agenda. We want him to. We expect him to. Maybe he's even done that before, shown his hand before. We know in our life, in Christian life, that, that, that God will do things, what is according to his character and will, but, but how he does it is up to him. How he does it, we seem to think either what we have experienced, however, is how we should do it. And so we find ourselves in danger of putting God in a box, wanting him to display his goodness and kindness like we've experienced ourselves. But the text very clearly shows us that God doesn't do it that way. Not always. Not always. In our passage this morning, Jesus rearranges the blind man's friend's misguided expectations. And even the blind man's expectations in order to bring home the point that they are called to worship him instead of their expectations. To trust him according to his will. And so let's look at this. And I kind of broken it down in your text, in your outline, in your, in your bulletin about these expectations. And we see it, of course, in three groups. The blind man's friend, the blind man himself, and of course, Jesus and what he delivers. So let's first look at this and break it down and see the blind man's expectations. A little bit of what I've already said, but look again at verse 22. And they came to Bethesda, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. A narrative, a context. Here's the setting, right? Remember a few weeks ago when we were last in the Gospel of Mark, we noted the, the heart situation that Jesus was encountering there in Galilee. They were expecting Christ to do all kinds of things. People were lined up to be healed. The expectation that when Jesus showed up that, that many would be healed. Remember, however, very clearly in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus didn't come just to be a miracle worker. He came to display the truth and the incarnation of who he is and the reality that nobody's going to be saved unless they repent and come to him. And so he, he's getting the sense that they're just coming for either a free meal or a free miracle. The hard expectations of even the religious leaders of the day, they, they were wanting Jesus to do a sign. And, and more importantly, they were wanting to capture him in, in some kind of mishap, 
so that they could trap him and discredit him. Their hearts were not good. So much so that in verse 12 of Mark chapter 8, Jesus said that he was done with their unbelief. The Jews had continued to reject him and, and didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They rejected the message. They wanted the benefits, but rejected him. They continually came to him and asked for a sign, and Jesus says, no more. No more. No more signs. At that point in Jesus' ministry, he is done with the public ministry. We know when we go through the Gospel of Mark, he now turns his attention to his disciples. He is heading to Jerusalem. He's heading to the cross. Everything in the plan and purpose of God is in motion. But I'm just perplexed, miracle after miracle. And yet they still wouldn't believe. John records for us in his gospel that the books couldn't contain all the miracles that Jesus performed during his day. Remember, we got a three-year ministry. And at that time, no amount of books could contain all the miracles. We get just a handful of miracles in the gospels. And even that, we're at danger of saying, you know what? We expect God to do all this stuff. Miracle after miracle were performed before the people and the religious leaders, and they should have understood that Jesus was God. Jesus was the Messiah, but to no avail. And so Jesus even rebukes the city in which he's at. This last miracle in a public display to some degree, because he pulls the man aside, you would think that they would get it. Luke chapter 10, verse 13 and 14, throw that up on the screen, Clover. It says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda. The city, two Jewish cities getting rebuked. He goes on to say, for if the miracles that have been performed in Tyre and Sidon were occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, two Gentile cities in the judgment than for you. Jesus indicts their unbelief. It is better for those in those two Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon than it is for these two Jewish cities in Corazon and Bethesda. And so Jesus turns his sights on his teaching his disciples and turning his sights on the plan and the purpose of going to the cross from this point on. And so here we find ourselves in verse 22 in this, this last miracle, public display to some degree before the people, before its disciples. Bethesda was on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. We know that he's been around the sea quite a bit. He's been displaying his miracles. He has, he has clearly pronounced that he is the Messiah. He's gathered there with his disciples, and of course, he's noticed in a group of friends. It says they, we don't know exactly how many, but they came, and they brought a blind man to Jesus. And it says there, they implored him, literally in the Greek, they begged him, begged him to heal the blind man. 
And notice that all they wanted was a touch, a simple reaching out of the hand to be able to have the power, the healing power of Christ, and to have their friend be able to see. They were earnest. They were forceful with their appeal. They approached Jesus and expected him to do what only Jesus could fulfill, and that was to heal their friend. Like I say, no doubt they most likely have heard of the many miracles that Jesus had performed up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. Just to remind your memory, we know that Jesus has healed the deaf and the mute man, which in itself, that was remarkable. When we went through that text, I'm still in the afterglow of that text thinking about what Christ has done there. It was a joy of somebody who had been around audio kind of a, you know, therapy and help. They were telling me, Pastor, do you understand for this man to speak clearly after being deaf is remarkable in itself? To be able to speak without ever hearing themselves speak before? And yet, the miracle for him to speak with such a clear voice, like he would be one that he always has spoken. We saw Jesus heal a woman with a flow of blood. We saw a man with a withered hand being healed, a paralytic, able to walk, a leopard, being able to be cast from its disease, and the casting out of demons. And we know according to Matthew's gospel that he records just in a simple verse that there were many other miracles happening. And so, to some degree, we expect that that these were right intentions, right expectations. They came with the full expectation that Jesus was going to heal their blind friend. And notice, all Jesus had to do was touch him. That's it. They're not asking much. They're not asking a lot of his time. It's important to understand a little bit about the the nature of blindness within Jesus' day. And what you have here is that it was a common plague. And it usually was on site or it came on through infections. And so it was blindness often in those days came upon a person later in life because of the unsanitary conditions that they found themselves in. And a blind person, often in Scripture, we see them begging. They had little opportunity to take care of themselves. And so they were at the mercy of others. We know according to Leviticus law, in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 8, a blind man was not able to become a priest. He was marred to such a degree that, that he was excluded from the priesthood. If he was a Levi... And blind, excluded. We also know, according to the scriptures, at least from the Pharisee standpoint, that they often saw that when somebody became blind, it was because of somebody's sin, either the parents or them themselves. And so they would look at the ailment and say that this was divine because you are sinful. Leviticus also tells us that when you encounter a blind person, make sure that you are not a cause for stumbling for them. In other words, be a help. I think the best thing that was going for this blind man, I mean, here he was maybe in the dregs of society, yet he had some friends that loved him. And they desired to bring him to Christ. 
I think we can admire at that. And I, I think we desire to do the same. We desire to bring people to hear about the gospel and, and, and hear about the Savior. They brought him and expected Jesus just to touch him. But all that was dashed. I mean, if you look ahead at verse 23... You got the scene, you're, you're kind of just in anticipation of what is Jesus going to do. These guys are begging him to touch him. And verse 23, here's the moment. Taking the blind man by the hand, there is the touch. And their expectation was that instant healing. But that wasn't the case. It wasn't the case. You can almost imagine the look on their faces that when Jesus reached out and took his hand and he wasn't healed, what in the world is happening here? Why didn't Jesus heal their friend when he touched him and and took him by the hand? And you and I both know why. Jesus is teaching us something here. God is going to do it his way. They expected him to do it their way with a touch, but Jesus did it his way to not only teach them a lesson and a truth, but, but also, I think it was for the blind man. Nowhere in the text do we give any indication that, that he is wanting to be healed. I think deep down he wanted to. Maybe he thought maybe this was, I mean, he had remedies. They had somewhat kind of, uh, and he probably been through all these things, trying to get his sight back but to no avail. God is going to do his his way. I push back from that just in the simpleness of the text, and, and I often think, how often do we expect God to do according to what we want him to do? You ever find yourself there? How often do we fall in the same trap and expect God to do what we think and then God shows up and does something totally different? Can I say it this way? I love a God who doesn't meet our expectations. What I mean by that, he doesn't do it our way. It's a good thing to have your expectations challenged, especially it is from God, because the fear is is that you can put God in a box and you can be wrote in your Christianity instead of continually being in the awe and the wonder of the greatness of God. God forbid that our Christianity would be so stale that we would fail to miss the hand of God moving in our life. We all need to learn to let God be God and let us learn to be in awe when he does his things. In thinking about this, nowhere does the church at large err more than the expectation that God is going to save somebody. You understand that salvation is his deal. He determines, he opens, he saves, he draws, he brings And yet, churches expect him to save everybody. 
Now, Scripture tells us that he desires for all men to be saved. We, we have, in, to some degree, this idea, a right expectation that he's going to do that. But the reality is that when we marry that with other texts, like, like, wide is the road to destruction. Narrow is the way of redemption. I mean, we put on services expecting God to heal or to save or do whatever we want in, in, in the way we want him to do it, as long as we have the environment set up for him to do it. We expect God to, to save people the way that we were saved. And that's the joy when, when in the waters of baptism, when we hear a testimony of somebody who has come to know Christ, what a testimony to hear how God redeems a soul. A lot different. And I think that we could all testify of the, the, the different nature of the own testimony of, of how God saved us. However, there's one commonality in all that, Right? Jesus Christ is the commonality. His grace and his forgiveness is the commonality. He won't go outside of that. He, he forgives people through the same grace that he saves all people. But how he does it, sometimes it, it takes individuals to be at their last wit in of life before a soul was awakened to the truth of his grace and mercy. For some, it's, it's a matter of just hearing the gospel being shared by a friend and that grace and that mercy explodes in their heart. My point is this. The trap is to think that our experience, our expectation is the normative, and it's not. The only thing that's normative in regard to salvation is how God saves people, and that is through repentance and belief in the Savior. Yet we must realize that the experience that this God-given grace that he gives to his people varies. I rejoice when I hear the testimonies of individuals and how they got saved. It's just remarkable. I mean, because what is it doing? It's taking a dead man and making them alive. The blind man's friends, they had, I think, good expectations, but they were misguided. They expected him to, to heal their friend. We don't know if redemption necessarily came to this man, but definitely they wanted their, their friend to be healed. Now, what about the blind man? I kind of alluded to that a little bit, and there's not necessarily a text tied to this, but I think we can infer it from the text. We can kind of get an idea of what's going on with his own heart. We can surmise from the text that really there wasn't much expectation. Nothing in the text gives us any indication that this man was excited to be in front of Christ. You almost get the sense that he's being dragged here by his friends, and they're the ones who are, are doing the talking. You get the sense that maybe their, their friends had more faith than he did. And so here he comes with his friends. They did all the begging. Notice the text doesn't say anything from his own heart. 
which is pretty remarkable because when we get to Mark chapter 10, we find another blind man, blind man by the name of Bartimaeus. And we know there this blind man had heard with his ears of all the things that Christ has done, and he begs, implores Christ to heal him. Look to the screen. You see this text just in a handful of verses. Bartimaeus says this, when, when he had heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Can you imagine the blind? He doesn't know. He's trying to listen to where he is, but he's crying out for mercy. The passage continues. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He is, he is calling for you. And throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on that road. Clearly a change, clearly a faith, clearly an imploring in the condition that he found himself. However, in Mark chapter 8, this blind man, which we don't have a name for, don't know his name, there was apparently any little desire. And I know that's reading maybe in between the text and the lines, but it's one of those things where I think the text would give us that in light of the comparison that we find in Mark chapter 10. And by the way, this is kind of an interesting miracle. And I think part of it is because of the blind man. I know part of it is because of his disciples who are watching. But this is the only place that you see a healing, and it takes two stages to heal him. Now, get me here. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have the power, that his power had run out, and that he needed to recharge for a little bit to, to re-zap him. Jesus had full authority to be able to, to heal him in an instant. But yet, something else is going on here. And I think part of it is for this blind man to understand the significance of who he's in front of. And Jesus being so compassionate as a shepherd to draw him along to where his faith will become sight. This, of course, diving back into the text. Jesus transcends all human expectations in the following verses, starting in verse 23. It reads there, taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, you asked, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, wait a minute. I don't think that's very kosher, is it? To hawk a loogie on your, on your, on your friend's face, Right? Now, that might be a little extreme, but he spit on this guy's face. But you can see what he's doing here, right? The only thing that this blind man has going for him is touch and feelings and, and, and the sense of senses and, and able to hear and, and to literally have the spit come. He felt that. He takes him by the hand, leads him out of the village, isolates him from the crowd, and then spits directly on the blind man's eyes. 
He knows that Jesus is doing something here. The text says, then he lays his hands on him. And then, again, not only is this a two-stage miracle, but first time that Jesus, after healing somebody, he asks them a question. Do you see anything? In the previous healings, Jesus would heal and then command the person to do something. But here, it is only here, in this miracle, that Jesus asks, how are you doing? The man gives his response in verse 24. It says, and he looked up and said, I see men. For I see them like trees walking around. Now, his response tells us a couple of things. It tells us that this was a latter onset of blindness. I mean, for he understood exactly what men's were. He understood what trees were. If he was born blind, he would have had no concept exactly. might have been explained to him, but he had a definite response of what he saw were men who looked like trees. Second, the man's vision was not clear. It wasn't sharp. It was fuzzy. So then in verse... 25, Jesus responds again. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. I mean, Jesus gives this, this man clear vision. It's, it's, it's better than 2020. He sees with clarity. He heals him. Text says that he, when, when he looked, he began to see everything clearly. It was without blur. The healing was complete. And then as usual, we, we get verse 26, and this was common. Jesus says, and he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. Don't, in other words, don't tell anybody about it. We understand clearly what he, why he's doing that. He, he knows that he hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't fulfilled his plan. He's trying to keep things under wrap. He knows, however, that how can you not be excited when you got healed, Right? He knows that these individuals are going to share about what's going, what happened to them. I think the greater question, however, is why is the two-stage healing going on here? What's the significance here? For one, as I pointed out, I think it was for the blind man to hear and eventually see the reality of why his friends brought him to Jesus in the first place. Jesus was bringing him along in his faith. And no doubt, once he could see, he could proclaim that Jesus is God and that he had healed him. There's, there's a reason why there was this very physical touch and this, this very physical spitting in the eyes and this reality of, of allowing him to come along with the reality of the truth that he is the Messiah, he is the king, he is the one to heal people. However, I think there's another reason. In light of our near context, and what we just have already seen in the beginning of chapter 8, remember the disciples before this passage struggled with understanding the plan of God and the purpose of God. And I think this miracle was before their eyes as they gazed in and as they watched Jesus do this. I think it was again teaching them that, listen, hey, you're much like this in the first healing, that you're a little blurry in your understanding of what I'm here to do. But I think he also gives them hope that eventually you'll understand. 
And get this, eventually they did. I think he's drawing their faith to an understanding, a clarity, and hope of exactly what's going to happen. And he performs this miracle, not only for the blind man and his friends, not only to dash expectations, knowing that he is in control, sovereignly in control of all things, but he wanted his disciples to understand what's next and that you will learn, continue to follow, and continue to watch. What's our greatest takeaway? I think I've alluded to it most often in this text. Let me just say it this way. God's ways are not your ways. And that's a good thing. His ways are always good and always right and always on time. How often do we need to wake each morning telling us that? Often God's ways are hidden. But get this, beloved, he knows exactly what he's doing. And we trust him. Scripture reminds us of this in Isaiah 55, 9. It reminds us about our great God when it says, Therefore, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways. Speaking about God, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Psalm 77, verse 19, the psalmist speaks about God saying this, Your way was in the sea, and your path in the mightier waters, and your footprints may not be known. His ways are not our ways. And this is what's so remarkable. When you think about the incarnation and the birth of Christ, remember the expectations of the Jews? They expected a Messiah to come and to to crush Roman oppression. And yet Jesus comes humble in a virgin birth, meek and mild. God sending his son, the Messiah, through a virgin birth, through a bright star. The whole world knew that God was doing something. And yet, often people miss him because their expectations were wrong. Do you think God knew what he was doing in that incarnation? By the way, he didn't ask you or me if he thought this was okay. The Jews knew that he was going to send a Messiah. The prophecy was pointing to that. They had concocted in their mind exactly how that was going to look like. And when it didn't happen, the way that they thought it, they rejected Jesus. It's sad because many Jews miss what was clearly described in the Old Testament. They miss And how often do we as Christians miss truth in the text? Because we have preconceived ideas of how we think God should do what he should do. The bottom line is this. We must submit to God and do his work and his will according to his way. Amen? And trust him. It is good to be in awe when your Savior shows up and he shows his hand and he does his thing. It's good to be shocked. Let him do what he 
does. He will do all things according to his character. We can expect that. But often, how he does it, we leave it to him. Knowing that his character is good and right. Knowing that we can trust his ways more than ours. Amen? Father, we uh, thank you for the text this morning. A simple truth that settles in our souls. We do marvel at the fact that you made a blind man see. It points to your divinity, points to the very fact that you're compassionate as a, as a shepherd. It points to the reality that you are the Messiah. All these things foretold, completed in you. May our worship of you, the fears that have become dull, it would become normative in the sense that, that it's just something that we do. Father, awaken our faith. Allow us to, to be in the text and, and the glory in your hand and your moving. May we understand who you are according to your character so that when we do see those things in play, we can clearly proclaim that is God. Oh, what a joy it is to, to be in your family to be your child. I'm often amazed of how you do what you do. And my only response is to say, hallelujah, what a savior. So Father, may you awaken our faith to the reality that you are going to do what is best, what is right, what is good according to to your will instead of ours. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand and we'll close in song. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.